The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Dr. David Andrews. He is a senior scientist at the Environmental Working Group. He uses his background in chemistry and nanotechnology research to investigate environmental health issues. His work focuses on finding ways to change national environmental regulations and government policies to protect public health. During his five years at EWG, he has developed comprehensive knowledge of the regulatory processes affecting industrial chemicals, consumer products, cosmetics, and nanomaterials. He holds a bachelor's in chemistry from Wesleyan University in Connecticut and a Ph.D. in chemistry from Northwestern. He has recently published a report that piqued my interest titled Erin Brockovich Carcinogen in Tap Water of More Than 200 Million Americans. And then later I read a post titled Scientists in New Jersey and Germany Support No Safe Level of Teflon Chemical in Drinking Water. And lo and behold, we have that in our taps as well. So welcome, Dr. Andrews. It's a pleasure to have you here. A pleasure to be on today. Thanks for having me. Well, why don't you start out by just telling me how you became interested in chemistry? You know, what led you down this path of your work? So it's both that, you know, there's a, I'm obviously very much interested in, in science and understanding how things work, how things impact, how things are made, as well as how they impact our health and our bodies. And so I was actually doing PhD research at Northwestern University that I came across this question of how do these new materials that we're developing, in this case, it was the development of new chemicals as well as new nanomaterials, how would they impact health? And so that's really when I made the transition from an academic research background towards, towards really investigating public health in our national chemical regulations. Mm-hmm. Well, I was curious a little bit about this latest report that you authored with Bill Walker from Environmental Working Group about chromium-6, or hexavalent chromium, because as a dietitian, I know chromium to be an essential nutrient. And in fact, we see low chromium levels linked to the development of diabetes, for example. And I went to the National Institutes of Health, and I went back and studied what is chromium exactly, and learned that it comes in two forms, primarily, trivalent chromium-3, which is the biologically active form found in food, and then the hexavalent chromium-6, which is the toxic form that results from industrial pollution. And that is what your report is going to focus on. Is that right? That's correct. And I think you covered that quite well in terms of there's really two common forms of chromium. Chromium-3, which, as you mentioned, is an essential nutrient, and chromium-6, which we now know can be extremely toxic. We've known for decades that it actually leads to lung cancer and exposed workers who breathe it in. And it's only over the last decade that we've learned that when in drinking water, and and actually this is done through federal testing of mice and rats, it actually significantly increased the stomach and intestinal tumors in those animals. And, And that's really raised an alarm for low-level exposure in drinking water across the United States. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you've got a great chart in this report. And I just want to take our listeners to www.ewg.org, and then you can find this particular report and others. But you've got in this report that exposure to chromium-6 can cause lung cancer, liver damage, reproductive problems, and developmental harm. And I think we have to keep in mind that there are pockets of the population that are going to be at greater risk. Those children, for example, who are developing rapid cell division, that stage of development makes them more susceptible to these toxins in our food system, food and water. And probably younger people all along the spectrum, so from in utero through our teenage years, makes us more susceptible. Is that your understanding as well? Absolutely. And this is really very much a developing area of of scientific research and inquiry, is really understanding how at specific periods of development we can be so much more susceptible to damage and disruption by chemicals in our environment. And so with the number of chemicals from chromium-6, in drinking water to also the perfluorinated chemicals that you mentioned earlier. These chemicals seem to be extremely potent at very low concentrations during these critical windows of development. And and that's what we're really concerned about is ensuring that our water is safe, not just for adults, but safe for children and developing infants, developing fetuses. Really, every stage of life, we need to make sure that our drinking water is clean and safe. Mm-hmm. So interesting because also in your report, you show the average level of chromium-6 in the largest U.S. water systems. And before we talk about the parts per billion that you found, I want to just give our listeners a couple of numbers. So the health goal is 0.02 parts per billion. And you have this great picture of a dropper and a swimming pool, and you say that one part per billion is a single drop of water in an Olympic-sized swimming pool. I think it's really hard for us to wrap our heads around the minuscule levels at which we see harm. Absolutely. It's such an incredibly tiny amount, and what this indicates is that a single oil dropper full of this liquid, in this case chromium-6, can contaminate 50 swimming pools worth of water. And so what that really means is that very small and and what would, you know, 100, 200 years ago, seemingly insignificant contamination of the environment on the order of gallons can contaminate water supplies for an entire city, potentially. Yeah. Now, when you were looking at the water systems across the United States, What made you choose the systems that you reported? Was it the fact that these were some of the most populated places or these were the places where you found the highest amounts? Within our report online, there's actually an interactive map where you can get all the results across the country. Right. So this was actually 60,000 samples, and this was not testing that EWG did. This was testing that was mandated by the Federal Environmental Protection Agency, and that the local utilities actually collected the samples and and mailed them to certified labs. So in the report, we actually broke out results for some of the largest cities that also had some of the highest average levels in their testing results. Mm -hmm. So keeping in mind that the health goal is 0.02 parts per billion, I go immediately to the city of Phoenix, Arizona, 
and the average parts per billion is 7.853. Population serve right. 1.5 million. Yeah, and, and across their testing results, there's incredible difference between the average value and what is the public health goal. The, the public health goal is not a limit. It, what it represents is really the, a defined safe level of minimal risk. And there's a scientific definition that, and this is this safe level that we present in the report, was actually calculated by state scientists in California. And it's a, a level that represents one excess cancer per million people drinking the water over a lifetime. And so this is really considered a level of no or very, very minimal concern. Mm-hmm. And so that's the standard which in the benchmark that we think people should use in determining how contaminated their water is. Right. I know we turn the tap on and we just take for granted that the water is clean and comparing our water to say countries that are dealing with cholera or severe bacterial contamination, our water is clean, but it's not what we expect. That's correct. Our water is clean. And at the same time, there are industrial contaminants such as chromium-6. And I should mention that chromium-6 can be contaminating the water due to industrial activity. It was used in uh, electric power cooling towers. It's also used in chrome plating, used in treating wood, used in treating textiles. But it can also be naturally occurring. At the end of the day, we're not as concerned about how it's getting in the water, just ensuring that the end water that's being served through your tap when you turn it on is safe and, and that's at a low enough concentration. What made you look at chromium-6? So the reason we looked at chromium-6 is because for a number of reasons. One is Environmental Working Group has been working on the issue of chromium-6 for a number of years. And actually in 2010, we did sampling of 35 cities across the country. And, and this was actually just a really a small pilot testing project where we had one sample from each of these 35 cities, and we found chromium-6 in 31 of those 35 cities. And it was actually in response to this testing, as well as some outrage from senators and the public, that actually is what added chromium-6 to this latest round of EPA water testing. And so EPA has a program that was established in the amendments to the Safe Drinking Water Act that tests nationally for up to 30 unregulated contaminants every five years. And it's actually a changing list of contaminants. And so in this latest round, chromium-6 was one of those contaminants. And that's why we were able to pull together so many test results from across the country and really present a picture of how widespread this contaminant is. Mm-hmm. And notice, too, in the report, one of the sources is coal ash. And I was just thinking about, you know, we've always hear this, well, we don't always, but many politicians will say, you know, we've got something called clean coal, and we want to make sure that our coal is cheap and we've got this cheap energy source. And then I find, oh, my goodness, dumped coal ash is one of the reasons why we see higher chromium-6 levels in our water. So we have to talk about the politics of our energy supplies, don't we? Well, the politics of our energy supply, as well as the politics of those companies that may be producing 
for releasing, in this case, chromium-6 into the environment and what a significant role they can play through lobbying or trying to interfere with the scientific process and, and interfere with the agencies in their attempt to regulate chromium-6. And we actually go into some of the reasons why we think there's no federal standard currently for chromium-6. And it's really quite revealing in terms of the influence that many of these corporations have in delaying and oftentimes blocking stricter drinking water standards that would enable safer drinking water Mm -hmm. for all Americans. I hope that our government agencies that we pay taxes to help protect us would be doing their job. And I would like to think that the Environmental Protection Agency is indeed protecting us. But if I understand your report and some insider conversations of what really goes on at the EPA, there is a lot of industry influence, and I'm not sure how to stop that. Do you have any ideas? Well, it's difficult on a number of different levels. There are absolutely a number of great scientists at the agency trying to push for safer drinking water standards. But... At the same time, the agency is open to undue influence from corporations. And so part of this is ensuring that we have federal legislation that is strong and health protective. In some places, there definitely needs to be a strengthening of federal legislation. And and our concern is that the amendments to the Safe Drinking Water Act were passed in 1996. In the last 20 years, the agency has set no new drinking water regulations for unregulated contaminants. Let me remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by Dr. David Andrews, who is a senior scientist at the Environmental Working Group. And we are talking about two reports from the Environmental Working Group. The first one has to do with chromium-6 in our water, The next one we're going to be talking about has to do with Teflon and compounds used in the production of Teflon and how they get into our water as well. Well, Dr. Andrews, is there anything else you want us to know? Perhaps we are at a point where we want to give our listeners an action step. I mean, I think we all want government that is responsive to public health needs and concerns. There is a strong lobbying influence. I think most of us are aware of that. You, as a scientist, I would love to know where you think our listeners can intervene. How can we make a difference? Well, I think that there's a few steps that you can take as a listener, and one is obviously listening to this program, becoming educated on the chemicals and contaminants that end up in our drinking water, and getting involved at both the local and the federal level in terms of pushing for change to make sure that our regulations and our standards are as health protective as they can be. And so we actually provide links on our website to a petition to submit your name to the Federal Environmental Protection Agency calling for a standard for chromium-6 and and really trying to kick the process into gear. Mm -hmm. I always wonder about those online petitions. I wonder how they're collected by the agency. Do they take all of those signatures and count them as one? I've heard it's more powerful to make an individual call to a representative and have a statement or an ask 
than it is to use online petitions. Has the Environmental Working Group had good luck with those? I think we've had good luck on both ends of that. Obviously, if you do have the time, and it's definitely valuable to reach out to the individual politician or to the agency by yourself. At the same time, providing your name on an online petition can be really quite valuable. And on a number of occasions, we have delivered these, and and we always deliver the petitions to the agencies or to the regulators, and it definitely makes an important statement. And the involvement is absolutely noted on every level and on all the issues I've worked on. I really think it does help move the ball. Well, good. That's encouraging news. Let's take a look at one of the pieces you recently wrote having to do with Teflon. And I'm curious about this because I always have to apologize to consumers that I told years ago that, oh, Teflon's safe. (laughs) I didn't realize I was actually looking at industry-related information. We've always been told that Teflon-coated pans are safe. But I think what we failed to do is ask farther up the road in the production of Teflon, were there any compounds in the development of Teflon that could be harmful to our environment and to us. And indeed, your report talks about PFOA. Tell me what that is and how it is harmful. So PFOA, as as you alluded to, is an ingredient that's used in the manufacture of Teflon. And, And actually, PFOA has been phased out of the marketplace in the past Two years, it had to be completely phased out of production and use in the United States by the end of 2015. But what this chemical is, is it's very similar to Teflon. It's just a shorter chemical. And what it has is a large number of carbon-fluorine bonds. And those bonds are part of the reason that your pan is nonstick, your clothing is both water-resistant and oil-resistant. But it's also one of the reasons that this chemical ends up being extremely harmful in the environment. Those bonds are so strong in these chemicals that they don't break down in the environment and they can actually accumulate in our body. And so over the past few decades of use, these chemicals have actually accumulated in the blood of Americans. And we now know that PFOA and a number of other similar fluorinated chemicals contaminate the drinking water for millions of Americans. Mm. And PFOA stands for perfluorooctanic acid. Is that correct? That is correct. What do we do? Well, at this time, the most important thing we need to do is clean up previous pollution, ensure that our drinking water is not contaminated. And that's the first step. And so part of that would be setting a strong federal drinking water standard. The next thing we need to do is make sure that the replacement chemicals are not going to lead us to the same position in a decade or two down the road. Mm -hmm. This would be like a replacement chemical, PFOS. And what does that stand for? Well, PFOS is a chemical actually like PFOA that was primarily used in the manufacture of Scotchgard. Mm. So that chemical has also been phased out of the market. Great. But there's a large number of replacement chemicals where they've tweaked the chemistry so that they don't accumulate in the body as much, but they share the same characteristic of being extremely persistent in the environment. Mm -hmm. So when we release these chemicals into the environment, they will be there for decades to millennial, really. 
They just don't break down under normal environmental processes. And the concern is that as our scientific understanding continues to develop about how these interact with our body and interact with other organisms in the environment, that we will have already irreversibly polluted. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you've got a child in the background, so you're a young father. What do you do with your water? Great question, and yeah, I've got a few children, and keeping busy, but at the same time, you know, that also is what, what brings the passion and really the, the desire to get to the bottom of a lot of these environmental pollution questions. Mm-hmm. And in terms of my water at home, I definitely do look for the results of the, the local utility and read through those in detail. I also do have an extra home water filter system that I use for our drinking water. What kind of water filter do you use? I actually use a carbon filtration system. This is a relatively inexpensive system that can be installed under the sink. One of the most common questions that I get, since water is such an important nutrient, vital to life, is what kind of water filtration systems should we use? You mentioned that you use carbon filters. Tell me more about the best kinds people can look for. And so... In terms of filtering your water, there's really two different levels of water filtration. And a great place to start is a, is a carbon-based water filter. And this is a, a granulated, activated carbon filter. And so you can get a system that is just a pitcher-type device. They'll cost on the order of 20 or $30. And this ranges from a Brita-type filter to a product made by Zero Water-type filter. And then you can also get an under-the-sink carbon-based filter, mm-hmm. which would cost a little bit more. And then to filter out contaminants such as chromium-6, you often need to use a filter called a reverse osmosis filter. Wow. And these typically cost a few hundred dollars and would be an under-the-sink type installation. So the carbon filtration system will not remove chromium-6? Most of the carbon filtration systems, such as the Brita, do not remove chromium-6 from the water. There is a company called Zero Water that makes a slightly modified carbon filtration system that is certified to remove chromium-6. Wow. But that does bring up a good point in terms of you can actually look and see or check with the company to see what the filter is certified to remove. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking as you're talking about these different systems and the the complicated nature of choosing the right one and then having the money to buy these filter systems, is that a lot of Americans can't afford to filter their water. Right, and we're aware of that, and and that's why we're pushing really for federal change, a federal drinking water standard. Yeah. You know, it's really a stopgap measure if you're forced or feel compelled to purchase a home drinking water system. The solution is a protective drinking water standard that has to be followed by all states and all utilities that provides clean, safe drinking water for all Americans. Mm -hmm. And what about the source, the, the point at which these chemicals are getting into our environment? Who are the regulators there? Well, in terms of the source of pollution, oftentimes this would be established through federal regulation um, in terms of Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act, as well as 
regulations dictating how these chemicals can be used and in what types of products. And so that chemical regulation is typically covered under the Toxic Substances Control Act, mm-hmm. which was recently amended to give the Environmental Protection Agency slightly greater authority to review the, the existing chemicals in use and to request additional safety testing data from, from companies using those chemicals. Mm-hmm. Knowing the science and being in Washington and seeing how regulations happen, are you hopeful? I'm very hopeful. You know, it, it's a moving target. And so as our scientific understanding develops and as we learn more about what's in our environment and what's impacting our health, we take steps both personally as well as on a government level to to mitigate the risk from those pollutants. Mm-hmm. And so in the long run, I think we are moving in the right direction. There's often setbacks and periods of very slow progress, which can be disheartening, but at the same time, I think we are moving in the correct direction. And so you know, one, one of the pieces I've highlighted in the report is really the lack of federal regulation over the last 20 years in terms of setting new drinking water standards. But when there's enough public pushback, enough outrage from Americans, really, that does bring about change. Mm-hmm. And so it's really important to become educated on these issues as well as involved. And, and that's where we think the importance of the petition as well as calling your congressman, your senator, and calling the agency and expressing your frustration with the fact that they have not set a drinking water standard, in this case for chromium-6, or the perfluorinated chemicals. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else that you want our listeners to know about either of these two reports on water? You know, the, the, the takeaway, I think, is that this is, you know, some of these trying to find understanding in, you know, is my water safe? What can I do? We're, we're really trying to provide guidance in terms of this is the scientific information that's out here. Here's why there isn't a federal drinking water standard. And here's what we need to do to move the country forward in terms of doing a better job of, of regulating our, our drinking water. And there are a number of places where it seems like we're up a lot against a lot of, of vested interests. In this case, with chromium-6, there's significant lobbying as well as significant scientific spending that's been done by the American Chemistry Council, the Electric Power Research Institute. Their work has been done really to, to try to delay and put off any federal regulation. So, you know, the public in some ways is up against a lot, but there are great scientists at, at the Environmental Protection Agency. There's a number of other environmental organizations who are really trying to present this information on on where things are getting held up. And I think the the collective voice, signing petitions, taking action will change the system. Mm -hmm. I think that the reports that we can read at the Environmental Working Group website are excellent, and I want to take our listeners there, www.ewg.org. Stay informed and great action steps. Thank you very much. 
Dr. Andrews, I want to thank you very much for being my guest. He is the senior scientist at the Environmental Working Group, where he uses his background in chemistry and nanotechnology research to investigate environmental health issues. I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you, Dr. Andrews, for being my guest. It's a pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you.